Today's big question, who cares how you identify? Everyone is talking about identity right now. Today's question isn't who cares how you identify, it's who cares how you identify, as in who is it that cares how we identify, why do they care, and where did that care originate? Our culture is so entrenched in identity politics, you may not even be able to recognize it, maybe not even in yourself. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the history of identity politics and how it's impacting your life today. But first, we want to give a big Something Burger shout out to our great friends at Pharos Films. Pharos Films is a state-of-the-art video production company serving Central Florida, specializing in professional promotional videos, real estate and advertisement, drone photography, and music videos, Longtime friend and founder of Pharaoh's Films, Brandon Miles, shot our promotional pictures, and they are fabulous. So don't wait. Reach out to Pharaoh's Films for all your video and photo production needs. You can visit them online at pharaohsfilms.com, that's P-H-A-E-R-O-S films.com, or give them a call at 321-795-5739. All right, as always, I'm going to introduce our producer, Cha, live in the studio. Hey, Cha. Hey. Okay, so uh, every week I say this, Cha walks into the studio and I'm like, I don't know how we're possibly going to get through this whole topic today. And today is absolutely no exception. So we wanted, we knew we wanted to talk about identity politics. I didn't know exactly where that would take us, but it's about to take us on a lot of twists and turns together. <laughs> so first, I, I don't think I could open an episode without doing a Merriam-Webster definition. I cannot be done. don't think I could or even want to. I don't even want to. <laughs> so let's start with defining identity politics. So Merriam-Webster <laughs> defines identity politics as politics in which groups of people having a particular racial, religious, ethnic, social, or cultural identity tend to promote their own specific interests or concerns without regard to the interests or concerns of any other larger political group. I have another definition okay, for great, you. Okay, great, great. So this one is written by German Lopez writing for Vox in okay. 2017. Okay. So it's a little bit more of a cultural right. definition. So German wrote, identity politics is a very vague phrase. Yes, this is true. But it generally refers to the discussion and politicking around issues pertaining to one's, well, identity. I'm still in the quote. The focus typically falls on women, racial minorities, immigrants, LGBTQ people, and religious minorities such as Muslim Americans. All the social issues you may have heard of in the past several years, same-sex marriage, police shootings of unarmed black men, trans people in the bathrooms, the fluidity of gender, discussions about rape culture, campus battles about safe spaces, and trigger warnings are typically the kind of issues people mean when they refer to identity politics. Okay. So basically, essentially, identity politics uses identity as a lens to understand and then to shape politics. Okay. Everything filters first through your identity. Right. Right. So I wanted to, a friend of ours, Cha, made a video the other day and they used the word folks, right? So Like F-O-L-X. Yes, folks. Understood. So t traditionally, we've known the word folks to be spelled like up until last week, we knew folks was spelled F-O-L-K-S. But now there's a new word emerging and it really wasn't last week. It's been coming for right. a little while. F-O-L-X. So typically the X we've seen come up in modern culture when we're trying to degender something. Right. Latinx. Like, yeah. Things like um, that. Things like but that. the word folks we all know doesn't actually already have a gender folks is already super inclusive so I was right. like so where is this x coming from so I I found my answer I was found somebody called the radical copy editor oh quite an interesting person so the radical copy editor wrote basically folks f-o-l-x is a coded way of saying this is a quote a coded way of saying folks like us still in the quote that is within community expression used by people who are radically non-conforming in terms of gender and or sexuality and for whom their identities are deeply radically political okay so it's a symbol 
not only of identity, it's of a politicized identity. Okay. So it gets right at the heart of what we're talking about yeah, today. Yeah, so and very I, specifically. Right. But okay. what really struck me about that is the idea that your identity can be deeply, radically political, as the copy, the radical copy editor said. Right. And just living and prioritizing your personal identity is an innately political act under identity politics. Right. And, and the F-O-L-X, as people use it, is a signal to others that you participate in this. in this in this politically radically non-conforming gender identity and that you're part of the political movement of the folx world basically okay specifically to gender identity no okay I thought um i mean this was specifically to gen oh i guess non-conforming in terms of gender and or sexuality for whom their identities are deeply radically political understood but it points to the bigger idea of that we're we're accustomed to and look to politicize our identity at every turn so and, and that's actually a very radical concept yeah and it cuts directly against what i really thought was the goal of equality which was you know the, there were movements like the civil rights movements feminism civil rights even the lgbtq movement i thought the goal was that we would reach the point our identities do not define us which many understood to be the goal I, it, this is brought up frequently but martin luther king jr said i have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. Now, this is brought up a lot. This quote is frequently used because it's brilliant. But now identity politics hopes to make the content of your character and the color of your skin or other immutable characteristics inseparable. It argues that those two things have to work together, essentially. And I've said this before, but it's in movements like the feminist movement and many of these movements based in rights, they appear to be lapping themselves. I know I said this in the issue, in the episode about women's sports, that we're at this point now where we've moved past the idea that we just want to be equal, and now we're at a point where people give us these long lists of their identifiers in their intro. Right. Right. So like or, for, tw- or your Twitter bio. Or your Twitter bio. Like, right. so for example, Michaela, she, her, hers. So before you know anything about me, I identify myself. Although I thought perhaps, and I think many thought that the goal of the equality of these different movements towards equality, you know, I'm putting that in air quotes, right. would get us past this, but it seems like we've gone so far past it, we're lapping it again, and we're, right. we're coming back. Just going headlong into signaling that you are a part of this radical uh, political movement identity. And, and it's very where identity is political, innately. Right. Um, I have two examples, Cha, and you're going to recognize both of them because they're <laughs> from our life. Oh, perfect. <laughs> so um, one is a way that I think the, the movement I see is lapping itself is at our university, this is after we graduated, so after the the death of George Floyd, mm-hmm. alumni from the theater department of our university got together and they wanted to go to the faculty to address issues of race in the department. And I went on to multiple meetings, but I went on to one that was a little bit into the process of this. And what really struck me at that meeting is that people, when they introduced themselves, they would say their name, their race, and perhaps their gender identity. So the, their identity came before the content of what they were going to say. And that was new. I hadn't seen that even right. from these people that we had been in school with, that they were asked to, to not only do their name, to do their race, to do their gender. And it was like the first thing we did was identify ourselves, yeah. um, which seems like, where is this all coming from? But of course, as we start to break down the history, it's not going to be so far-fetched. Another example is that producer Cha and I, when we first graduated from college, Cha produced a one-woman show that I was in, and it was called Grounded, and it was about great a show. such a great show. And it's about a fighter pilot. I was playing a fighter pilot who was reassigned to flying drones, and it focuses on mental health in this modern warfare age and the transition that military personnel and their families have to go through when they come back home, basically. So. We had a professor in college who was a women and gender studies professor who both of us had and we loved. Really, really awesome. She came to see the show. And during the show, after the show, we had a question and answer session. And somebody in the audience asked me the question, basically, um, what, how did being a woman shape the role? And I, my answer was basically like, well, I don't, I didn't really think about it. I just am a woman and I played the role and it it didn't, I guess it shaped it, but I didn't put a lot of conscious effort into shaping it based on my womanhood because I just am a woman. Right. So I didn't, it just didn't, I didn't think about it. I was thinking about a lot of other things that I hadn't, I I was playing a veteran, uh, playing somebody in the military. Those are a lot, those are what were really driving it because that was the things that were more foreign to me, not being a woman. I was just, I didn't think about that at all. But then after the show, 
the professor came up to me and said that that was a missed opportunity, that I should have used that moment to to filter this all through the lens of my gender, that all of the play was really about gender. And I remember even she made a review of the show saying that it was a discussion of gender. And I was like, I don't understand where that's coming from. But then when I start to do more research on identity politics, that's because, especially, and I said she's a women and gender studies professor, she filters everything through that lens. So my living and breathing as a woman, doing anything is an opportunity to politicize my identity. It's an opportunity for female political advancement. Any move I make could be that. So anytime I don't choose to politicize my identity, I've missed an opportunity for female advancement. Right. And this, if I may ask you a question, this is where this movement, this radical sort of political movement is where when we hear general, we hears someone say like, um, it's so important that this will be the first female blank. Oh, absolutely. That, that is where this is rooted from and in this radical movement of everything is through this yes, gender and lens. I think conservative people get this wrong a little bit because they're like, I don't know, people, they're not talking about their politics. All I know is that they're a woman or they're transgender or they're African-American or they're Asian, whatever, that's all I know. But through the lens of identity politics, that is political. Now, mm-hmm. I don't think it has a lot of content to it. It doesn't tell me right. a lot about how you're going to govern me, which is what I really care about in the content of the character. Right. Um, so there's a disconnect there for conservatives, I would say. Well, I'm just saying we say they're not being political. They're being extremely political. Right. It's just that it's in this kind of small capsule of identity, which is the driving force of identity politics, which is a huge driving force in our politics in general. Right. So that's what you're right. Yeah. When we hear that about people and it's like we before we know anything about how they're going to behave or if we're even going to like it, we're supposed to celebrate them purely based on their identity, especially now with representation and things like that. I mean, it starts to get foggy there. It's not that any of those things are bad. Representation isn't innately bad. It's just when you see only that about a person that starts to get like, wait a minute, how, what is that? I don't know anything about the way you're going to vote or anything. Right. And it seems very backwards because as you were just pointing out before is I thought the point was to have more individuality. Like we don't like, right. Of these movements to escape the generalizations and the stereotypes. But now by signaling that you are F-O-L-X folks, you are signaling that you can expect from me a certain set of behaviors, a certain set of political leanings, right? Political leanings, thought processes, how I interact with the world. And that just seems so backwards. Absolutely. We're actually going to go to a clip right now of that because I was watching an interview with Douglas Murray and he had just he released a book and it was called the madness of crowds so i posted the full interview on my facebook which you can find my professional page at the compassionate conservative but also we'll share it on the something burger pages as well so that way you can see it but in this uh douglas is starting to talk about this exact thing we were just talking about like wait a minute i thought we were just trying to get to equality what's happened and he perfectly sums it up so we're going to go to cut one been like for me it's been like watching a train pulling into the destination that you desired for it to be drawing into. And just as you thought it was going to get there, suddenly got ahead of steam, went shooting off down the tracks, off the tracks and scattering people in its wake. And I think that's the case with each of these issues to do with gay, women, race and trans. It's, it's, we were getting to, we were getting to or had got to the issue of equality, the, the, the position of equality. And then for some people, they couldn't cope with equality and, we, and they went past equality. This is a really dangerous one. They went past equality to better. So there he's saying exactly what you were just expressing. People got to equality. Right. His argument is they couldn't handle equality. They rode past equality. And I felt like we were saying the same thing. I say, you know, the movements lapped themselves. He described it as a train coming into the station and going past the destination and just knocking everybody down and that's exactly how it feels to a lot of people who were really looking forward to that kind of equality yeah where people don't have to live under the just their identities they get to be the entire complexity of who they are yeah but identity politics it relies on the separation of people into these groups because it has an assumption that that's the most effective way to advocate for their specific needs That's the assumption identity politics relies on is that as a woman, I am the only one and other women are the only ones who will be able to effectively advocate for me. And thus my identity and bounding into groups is or binding into groups is going to be political. It'll be a political force. So it's really similar to the idea of faction 
which is what we discussed in the episode what about democracy so you'll have to go back to that episode and listen (laughs) but although the founders they wanted to resist faction identity politics employs faction to mobilize groups for political change do you see how that's different absolutely so this got me to what is the history of identity politics how did we arrive at this we didn't just invent this although it's kind of a word that seems like it's popping onto the modern scene it's been around for a while okay so we're gonna go you're ready to go on a journey let's take it all the way back on a journey cha (laughs) so the history of identity politics by michaela getz (laughs) um so I'm not I, I'm only going to be able to go to some highlights, but we're going to start with a person whose name is Antonio Gramsci. OK, Antonio Gramsci was an Italian Marxist philosopher. We're going to skip Marx because all these people kind of riff off Marx. So first, right. first, there's Marx. We're not even that's a whole other episode. And, and really quick, Michaela, can maybe for some people who are joining us who are like, OK, why does it matter to understand? I think that mm. people miss this kind of with to mo- contextualize. Everything. Yes, to contextualize. Yeah. So why does it matter to understand the history of a movement? The only way we're going to be able to judge the movement of movements in the future <laughs> is by their past. Yeah, totally. So if we want to understand where this train is heading, we need to look to where it's been before. Yeah. And also, I think that as ideas, movements grow, sometimes they take on these different forms. And it's hard to understand why certain things happen. Like in the country now, we're looking at all these different things on identity and we're like, how is this happening? But as we start to delve back to the history and we understand kind of the genesis of this entire movement, then we're like, okay, this makes perfect sense. It contextualizes and it makes sense of all of these things that seem to be unrelated and a bit strange in our society right now. We look back and we're like, oh, this was a design. This yeah. was a plan. And I think that for the both of us, too, as, as we talk to people our age and, you know, who, who we're targeting, really, is that something that I think our generation might be missing a little bit that we'd like to bring back into the sphere is um, putting emphasis on history mm-hmm. to, to, like you said, to understand where this is going and that um, we can only make informed decisions based on what we have known Right. There's we cannot nothing new. know the future, mm-hmm. so we have to n- know where things are coming from, so we can better make decisions in the future. Right. Because there's nothing new under the sun. Right. So as we understand what's come under the sun before us, we will see what is coming under the sun again. <laughs> so. Okay. Thank so, you. Thank you. That was a good yeah, question. So Antonio Gramsci, he was an Italian Marxist philosopher. So a lot of us know about Karl Marx, Marxism. It's kind of in this like world where we hear like Marxism, socialism, communism all kind of mixed together we'll talk about Marx but I'm not going to start with Marx because that I would have got stuck there for at least six (laughs) weeks so Gramsci he was an Italian Marxist philosopher he was a writer he was a politician he was born in 1891 he died in 1937 okay and Mussolini who was the fascist uh, kind of the dictator he was the head of the fascist regime so yeah I guess you'd call him a dictator he was a dictator he put Gramsci in prison where (laughs) Gramsci was incredibly productive and he wrote like 30 notebooks and 3,000 pages of history and analysis while in prison. Wow. Mussolini in prison's Gramsci. He gets to writing. So in theory, he uh, in prison, he wrote the prison diaries or it translates to the prison journals sometimes where he expanded on the theory of Marx. Okay. So we're going to learn about Marx kind of in contrast to him. So Marx and Gramsci, these two dudes, they both wanted to see the fall of capitalism. That's the genesis of this. They want to see the fall of capitalism and they want to see the dawn of some new utopian future. This idea that we can achieve utopia if we can dismantle the oppressive systems. That's the theme. But Marx, he had a mostly economic focus where he was um, dividing people by class and their economics. Socioeconomic class. Socioeconomic class. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. And at the time in Italy, wherein Gramsci was writing, that was kind of falling flat because basically the working class wasn't really agitated and they didn't feel like revolting and starting a whole new system because they were pretty much content. So Marxism, where it divided the world into socioeconomic class and everything was the struggle between the haves and the have-nots, Right. Gramsci believed to achieve this Marxist ideal, which was the, the goal of Marxism was a global classless society. We break down all that, like the hierarchies, essentially. And so Gramsci thought to achieve that ideal, so again, he's riffing off of Marx, they needed to destroy what he was calling the superstructural systems that would maintain capitalism. So the word superstructural is big. I was reading, I mean, I read so much. 
my brain is just like I could <laughs> I could go off. But anyway, so he believed that the ruling class, which is a kind of ripping off Marx again, the ruling class, you have this disdain for the ruling class. Um, they used cultural institutions and ideology to maintain power over everybody else. Yes. Do, like, does everyone hear, like, are you hearing this, everybody? I know. It's the same. That's what I mean. It's exactly, I mean, it's going to get, you're going to get more right. like, oh man, this is America right now. Right. So before it was an economic-based struggle, now Gramsci elevates it to an ideological struggle. Okay. This brings Marxism to a whole new level. Right. And ideological is? Ideas. Cultural institutions. Thank you. <laughs> so the superstructure that Gramsci was like, this has got to go. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was things like culture, ideas, ethics, morality. So things like education, family, faith, yeah. they could all fall into this superstructure. So it's kind of the things that are the strongholds of our society that I would say these things ground us and advance our society. Yeah. But people like Marx, people like Gramsci. They have to destroy them. They Well, they thought that everyone is a product of their circumstance. They, everybody is kind of a result of the things around them, basically. So any inequity, anything that's unequal in people is because of something that could be traced back and blamed on the superstructure, not on their individual actions per se. It's that they, it's the superstructure kind of imposed it on them. So they needed to dismantle the superstructure so they could have the classless utopia. Utopia is a big thing. Yeah. They wanted to achieve utopia. They were, they were trying to create a kind of garden of Eden. Well, not even because without God. Right, right. (laughs) Um, but then Gramsci, he he coins this, well, I don't know if he coins, but he popularizes the idea of hegemony, which I looked this up. It's Homogeny? either... No. Hegemony. Oh, hegemony. Okay. Yeah. H-E-G-E-M-O-N-Y. Hegemony. Hegemony. Okay. Hegemony. 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 And I'm, there was a couple of different ways to say that. And I heard a lot of different people in different accents saying it kind of differently, but they never said homogeny. It's hegemony. Okay. Okay. And so what does that mean? Merriam-Webster says. Oh, yes. Merriam-Webster says that hegemony is the social, cultural, ideal, ideological ideas or economic influence exerted by a dominant group. Okay. So any ideology of the upper class had to be destroyed. He called it counter hegemony. Somebody's going to come back and comment and say, Michaela, you've been saying this so wrong. Okay, well, just judge me on my ideas then. <laughs> <laughs> but they had to create. Y'all get it. We spelled it. Yeah, <laughs> we spelled it. <laughs> but I'd love to debate ideas if you want. But if I'm pronouncing this wrong, please let me know. But in a really nice way, I'm sensitive. So <laughs> anyway, so he called it counter hegemony. Okay. So to bring about the revolution, which was really the goal, you wanted to bring about revolution, you had to take part in counter hegemony. So it wasn't enough to not just take part in hegemony, you had to be counter hegemony. Does that sound familiar to you, Cha? <laughs> Does it? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like you can't yeah. just not be racist, you have to be anti racist. Right. Silence is violence. Yeah, absolutely. It's right. not, a, so you have to partic- participate in counter hegemony. Hegemony. <laughs> And you have to dismantle and challenge the legitimacy of the superstructural institutions, faith, religion, family, um, political power, basically. And all those systems of cultural hegemony, they had to come down. They had to go. So it's like Gramsci is like Marx, plus he brought in this cultural ideology, ideas element. Okay. So in his own words, he said, quote, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. He'd be pleased. He would be really pleased that this is exactly what's happening right Well, that's now. why it's not surprising when you go back and say, oh, this is what he wanted to happen and now it's happening. Yeah, and now we're here. And they worked, I mean, people like Gramsci and the followers of Marx and, and kind of neo-Marxists in all different directions, all these offshoots. They've been working hard. Yeah, very Consistently, hard. right? So Gramsci shaped a lot of what would be the Marxist philosophies of the West. Okay? Right. And all of this was really in pursuit of utopia, but also of equality, which again, if you go back to what about democracy, equality and freedom are not always no. buddies. And, and freedom was not a concern. It was equality. Right. And and to, to put a pin right here really quick is I just implore everyone to 
do the research read like Michaela does ask questions to Michaela you know if, if you don't have time to do the research which I encourage fully but ask us questions because the flip side to this coin right I mean he's just saying it very specifically um right now is he's saying he wants to uh, destroy the superstructure by elevating another structure like guys it's just going to elevate something else oh, you yeah. will serve a master period oh we're going there too that's good no you're right it's true so, so just decide which one you right. would have or live under so, and and really know what you're signing up for mm-hmm. i agree so the Gramsci coming to the West, it could account, and I believe it does, account for the attack that we're seeing now on things like the family structure, like from our last episode with Grace, Do Black Dads Matter, and Faith, huge attack on Faith, because right. those things, they were some of the biggest obstacles to the Marxist revolution. They were considered weapons of the haves to keep the have-nots in their place, and most importantly, or maybe not most importantly, additionally, they were a roadblock roadblock to equality and to what is universal happiness of course i reject the kind of foundation that equality will equal universal happiness i think that's kind of a stretch but anyway that's the foundation of some of these ideologies of course though how they define utopia i don't want to live in their utopia but (laughs) anyway so then we go forward so we had gramsci okay we come forward now to herbert marcuse which is spelled like marcuse Okay. But I listened to also a bunch of fancy people saying Marcuse. Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse. Okay. Okay. So Herbert Marcuse was born in 1898 in Berlin, and he died in 1979 in Starnberg, West Germany. Anyway, so he was German, but he was, became German-American. He immigrated later. We'll get to his story. So he was a Marxist, but he also mixed Marxism with Freud. Ooh. Right. <laughs> oh, no. And he became he became really influential. And they talk about he became very influential, influential to student. Uh, they said this leftist student movements of the 1960s. This is according to Encyclopedia Britannica. And also, especially after the 1968 student rebellious rebellions in Paris and West Berlin at New York City's Columbia University. So he becomes pretty influential in the world of right. ideology of Marxism and socialism. Yeah. Well, when, you, when you come off of Freud and Marx and you mix them together. So he was Jeez. he was credited though for developing critical theory. So you might have heard of this before. You're probably hearing about it now in the terms of critical race theory, but there was also critical law theory. I think critical theories is much bigger than that, but critical theory. So I was reading the Foundation for Economic Freedom and they defined critical theory. This is just a definition tunnel. You go down more and more definitions. <laughs> so they've defined critical theory as, quote, a philosophical approach to culture and especially to literature that seeks to confront the social, historical, and ideological forces and structures that produce and constrain it. So basically, it places the world into a box of oppressors versus oppressed. Yep. That's what critical theory does. And there are kind of the good people who are oppressed this is not openly well it is openly said sometimes and the oppressors who are kind of the evil force of the battle of good versus evil Well, it is simply i mean and i had to take critical theory in college right and it was very simply put to me and i took critical theory just like in general it was like a survey class of just theory um and it was put to me as it's um very simply protagonist versus antagonist yeah so you fall into two categories in the world uh, at least according to my college professor, that you're either part of the protagonist group or you're part of the antagonist group. We're a bunch of English majors, so that's, right. you know, this is kind of what we understood. Right, and it's that traditional theory they thought served the the haves, basically, and critical theory was more critical of the power structures and the institutions that kept the, quote, the haves in power. Right. So when they were critical, it would be able to serve the powerless, was the idea. It's very Robin Hood-esque, but right. in a philosophical way that they want to take from the rich, give to the poor. It has a lot to do with like, human nature and how we like to do that. You know, like why we tend towards this kind of redistribution. That's a whole other thing. Right. Though. We'll have coffee. <laughs> so, so the goal basically, though, was to divide people up and drive them to pursue their own liberation. So I said before with Gramsci, he was like, why aren't the people revolting? They're basically still content. So then Marcuse, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to jump all around here. Nah, now I'll go back. Okay. So again, so the goal was to drive people to pursue their own liberation. It was a kind of cynical view that 
all tolerance and norms are oppressive and they have to be dismantled. So this is a key thing. Marx, Gramsci, and Marcuse all hate capitalism. Right. Hate it. Big, big hate of capitalism. <laughs> that is usually what it comes back to is the evils of capitalism must go. Because, again, Marx was more about economics. And even though it layered on, it really was right. ultimately about capitalism. Uh, yeah. And, and everyone listening, this you know this is happening. If you're on Facebook at all, you hear how horrible capitalism is every day. Yeah. Well, and then... Then Marcuse blends Marx and Freud because he equates sexual freedom with political freedom, which we still see now. Yep. Huge. Where Freud thought maybe we should channel all of these base sexual desires into something more constructive for society. Marcuse was like, heck no. We got to break the chains of the oppressive capitalist structures and embrace the depths of our sexual desires. We're going to hear that a lot. Um, sexual freedom being equated with political freedom was like a big ideological shift. Right? Because now we think to be free, you have to be sexually free. And unfortunately doesn't end up feeling like freedom it ends up feeling like bondage but people have been sold that idea so the goal of these movements so this is important to remember the goal of these movements might not have always been sinister as they wrote the goal is always human happiness nobody set out saying like my goal is that everybody ends up super down all the time the goal is utopia the goal is human happiness so they thought but the method to achieving that goal was dismantling and reorganizing everything which I and others believe might be a naive idea because they base it on if we create perfect conditions, people will behave perfectly right. versus in perfect conditions, people can still kind of suck, yep. which we've seen because right. human nature is not perfectible. Right. We just keep, we just keep on keeping on in the way we've kept on forever, which is failing. Yeah. And, and the cliche that's like, uh, you know, the grass is greener on the other side and then you get to the other side and it's like there's always another side yes <laughs> there's always 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 another side or you always want what you can't have whatever they're cliches because they're true they ring true right for, for most so anyway marcusa he immigrates to america to escape hitler and he's very upset you have to contextualize this man he's very upset and he's super disillusioned because yes. his life has just completely fallen apart in germany Right. And he gets to America and he's really bummed out that American people are not also upset. Okay. And he's like thinking, looking at Americans, like why Americans are so content. They don't know how oppressed they are. Like he's living in a world where the blinders have been removed. He can see the oppression of the world and he moves to America and they're content. They're thriving and it bums him out. And this is important to emotionally contextualize that he's like, they just don't get it. They don't see how dark it is. The oppression, they don't understand. They're content, but they're slaves, basically. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's how he's thinking. I like to make these people as human as possible. Because that makes sense. When you see, like, he came from Germany. He's so disillusioned. America, he's happy. And he's just kind of like... So he... he, He's similar to Gramsci in that he's like, how do I agitate people to the point of revolution? Because you need people agitated, you need them to revolt to do full structural reform. Right. So then you just point out how oppressed they are. Right. That's what you have to do. Right. So, he, he, of course, he thinks they don't see how oppressed they are, but now he's here in America during the civil rights era. So he's like, like, Bob, like, ding. He had the new agents for change, and it was racial minorities. Yeah. So that's how this evolves. Okay. He's like, okay, I have a new, a new group that will carry out the revolution. That right. Marx and Gramsci and all these people before me have tried to. The revolution, the march to utopia, will have new people. First, it was the workers under Marx. That didn't really work. And then they were moving and trying different groups. And he's like, I'll get this one. This one will work. Right. Okay. So I have some quotes from Marcuse. He said, quote, talking about capitalism, he said, it's a good way of life, much better than before. And as a good way of life, it militates against qualitative change. Right. So capitalism was a a barrier to change because it was kind of good and they were kind of content. Right. And then he also said underneath the conservative popular base is the substratum of the outcasts and outsiders, the exploited and persecuted of other races and of other colors, the unemployed and the unemployable. The fact that they start refusing to play the game may be the fact which marks the beginning of the end of a period. So he saw the he saw it as an opportunity. Right, sure. to pursue the ideology of his heart. <laughs> right. yeah. So basically, people were too happy under capitalism. So he was like, all right, I'm going to turn to race. Again, you can't attack capital. It seems to be working for them. Ultimately, it is about capital and capitalism, but I'm going to do it through race. Right. And it's a big riff off of the central idea that capitalism tanks. That's kind of the base like assumption that has to be made to buy into any of these ideas is that capitalism is the worst. Right. 
so these people are still relevant today are thinkers of the time still reference back to these people. I have, um, I was reading the Radical Philosophy Association and they had an article about his relevance today. And they were saying in that, that quote, Marcuse's philosophy practically from the beginning addressed the deep roots of the capitalist system's functioning and its crisis, which they said was the commodification of labor, the burgeoning inequality, wasted abundance and lives without meaningful purpose. So he wrote a book, Marcuse, that was called like the one dimensional man saying even the rich people are oppressed by their richness, basically saying like we all live these one dimensional lives in America with our success and our money and our happiness. <laughs> Doesn't he? He sounds really jaded. <laughs> Very jaded. Um, and maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, didn't hang yeah. out with him at the time, but he seems his, <laughs> his writing seems very jaded. Right. Um, he essentially, he was saying that it was a one dimensional because they were oblivious to the problematic nature of, he said, uh, prevailing social and economic relations and he needed to wake them up. This wokeness. Is, he needed to wake them up to their struggle. Right. They didn't know. That's a big theme. Right. And, well, that, and, and the word problematic, how many times have we've heard that recently? X, X person is problematic. Right. This idea is problematic. Right. I'm like, what does that even mean anymore? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but then, so again, the base thing that we're attacking was capitalism. Capitalism in our society has kind of been turned into whiteness as the, the new way of defining the same thing. And this was an interesting theory. Like, I was reading an abstract by, it was called One Dimension, One Dimension, wow, can I, Dimensionality? Yeah, Dimensionality. My goodness, One Dimensionality and Whiteness. Um, and it was... In Whiteness? And Whiteness. And so whiteness. One Dimensionality, remember, Dimensionality was written by Marcuse, the right. One Dimensional Man. And now there's this like abstract bringing it to and, Whiteness. And Whiteness. Okay. Yeah, Understood. so they're combining this in Whiteness. They're saying in this writing, this was written... Dolores Calderon at the University of California, Los Angeles. Okay. So they said that the concept of whiteness, which posits that whiteness in the context of white supremacy is an ideological manifestation of capitalism in the United States, which basically is that whiteness equals capitalism. Like, okay, hold on. <laughs> the, I don't think this, I always feel right, like we need right, to say that. Right. The concept of whiteness in supremacy. Can you just read that again? The context of white supremacy is an ideological manifestation of capitalism. It's an it is an it's an abstract, so it's going to be very wordy. Sure, sure. But it means but capitalism equals whiteness. No, I know. it's just absurd. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would agree. I didn't. I read a good part of this essay. Again, I only have a week in between these episodes, so I can't go down too far into the holes. <laughs> right. But basically, the the writer went on to say that. The ideology of whiteness represents a key part of the normative order of advanced industrial society that must be refused. The reproduction of whiteness in educational structures serves to oppress race, gendered, and classed individuals and communities who deviate from the norms established by the ideology of whiteness. My point is that when you go back and you put in the word capitalism or you put in economics into all of this, it's kind of like the same same game, new players. Yeah. Um, and now whiteness is kind of the new way of explaining they're calling it a manifestation of capitalism which i'm pointing back that all of this has always been about trying to take down capitalism, capitalism right um in a big way and it's about economics even though we've put right. it into these new really mass we the people who have tried to advance the ideologies which is really not me but have put it into these new contexts that have given right. it more popularity which was smart they were geniuses in their own way you know Gramsci had a lot of time sitting in prison just thinking yeah as much as he could so this brings me this is my last historical thing identity politics that is growing you see it's like it's shaping then we get to the Combahee River Collective in America this is where when you add like google like when did identity politics pop up in America this is when people say a lot I don't know if that's true based on like a lot of my research but it seems to be that it entered into the right it was popularized at minimum yeah okay so this was in the 1970s okay so it was a group of Combahee Combahee as always, <laughs> I apologize, but C-O-M-B-A-H-E-E, River Collective. It was in the 1970s, and it was a group of black feminists. They called themselves radical black feminists, and they were scholars, they were activists, and they were meeting in Boston. They wanted to form an organization that specifically addressed issues for black women. So in this was all kinds of people. There was uh, celebrated scholars, poets, there was the future first lady of New York um, and all these different people and they were all in this collective and they took their name, which was interesting, 
um, from Harriet Tubman. They from the South Carolina from South Carolina site where the abolitionist Harriet Tubman led a military campaign that freed more than 750 enslaved people. Wow. So that's where they got the name from, okay. which is a, a, a piece of history about Harriet Tubman. Anyway, all these people they their big move outside of their meeting and their gathering together is they publish a collective statement in 1977. That's kind of what spreads, right? Okay. And they say that the authors were focused on the combined oppression of their racial and sexual identities. So they, everything in their collective, they actually use the word identity politics and they put everything through the lens of that. Nobody could understand what it's like to be a black woman except for a black woman because they live on the crux of these two different oppressed groups. So they weren't being representative in the black community, represented in the black community or in the feminist movement because that nobody could understand them was kind of the the base of this. So I want to read some from this statement because it, it is very influential still black lives matter actually has it on their, I don't know if it's on their website, but they were connected to the, the site that I was reading people immediately after this, you could go to black lives matter. It's connected. People are referencing this. So they said in it, quote, we realize that the only people who care about us enough to work consistently for our liberation are us. Our politics evolve from a healthy love for ourselves, our sisters, and our community, which allows us to continue our struggle. This focusing upon our own impression is embodied in the concept of identity politics. We believe that the most profound and potentially most radical politics come directly out of our own identity, as opposed to working to end someone else's oppression. So it was this idea that they needed identity politics because they thought no one else would stand up for them except for them. So then they also said later, a combined anti-racist and anti-sexist position drew us together initially, and we developed politically, we addressed ourselves to heterosexism and economic oppression under capitalism. This is, a, this is important. This is how it comes back to capitalism. They say, we realize that the liberation of all oppressed peoples necessitates the destruction of the political economic systems of capitalism and imperialism as well as patriarchy. We are socialists because we believe that the work that we must... We believe that work must be organized for the collective benefit of those who do the work and create the products and not for the profit of the bosses. So they were socialists. You can read the whole statement. It's everywhere. Um, And socialism, what they were saying they were, socialism is basically there's no private ownership of anything. Like in America, you can have private property. There's only public ownership. So that's what they were saying. Yeah, they were looking for public ownership. Like they were just saying. Yeah. Yeah. For the people. Yeah. So they worked for it. And it was ultimately still, they used identity politics ultimately to destroy capitalism and bring about socialism. Same theme throughout all these people. So these are just a few of the people throughout history. And man, I mean, I could go on for days, but I won't. (laughs) Um, Basically, the theme is you have to worse wake people up to their oppression. You have to agitate them, wake them up, woke them, basically, so that they'll become disillusioned with the systems, tear them down. Then socialism and perhaps on the way to communism will step in and then... Basically, they'll make every private thing public. There will be equality, and thus there will be no more bad people, and boom, utopia. Right. That's the idea. That's the Th- That's concept. the trajectory. That's what they think they're marching towards. towards. So, And these right. people have really shaped the way we think and look at identity in America in a huge way. Absolutely. It's everywhere. You get on TikTok, you get on Facebook, you get on Instagram, you get on Twitter. It's everywhere. They wouldn't know, oh, I'm quoting, you know, Marcuse, or I'm going back to the River Collective. They wouldn't know that, but they are. So... Basically, again, the premise is break down every institution and boom, utopia. That's kind of, that's it. Right. And that's a pretty extreme premise, but a lot of us are unknowingly basing a lot of our social interactions on this premise. 100%. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about identity politics today and ask the question, once we destroy all the institutions, then what do we do? things that we must cancel led lights because they do not have the black color and that is a racism the lgbtq flag because the lines are straight and that is a homophobic arnold schwarzer 
because his last name sounds like the racism word and that basically counts as him being racist. Being physically fit because that sets unhealthy beauty standards and makes lazy people feel bad about themselves. Mentos because calling them Mentos is assuming their gender which is big big sexism. Chess because the white pieces move first. Coincidence? Definitely. But it still offends me. Food because I do not give my consent on being hungry. It's for me, it's the coincidence. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about how identity politics is influencing our lives right now. But first, that was a new segment. Oh my gosh, yeah, that was <laughs> tick tock uh, clock. So uh, every once in a while, when Michaela just feels it really good or we're, we're sending TikToks <laughs> back and forth, we will introduce to you a really funny TikTok that just tickled us or, or made a lot of sense. So there you go. Because now we're on TikTok. Something Burger's on TikTok. Yes, please. And we're funny as can be. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Anyway, okay. So <laughs> follow us on TikTok. So TikTok. <laughs> okay. So identity politics is influencing our life right now. So, again, identity politics is basically you got to divide people into groups under the assumption that only the people who are within your group will understand you and be able to advocate for you. As we know now, people really like to define themselves into smaller and smaller subsets of these groups because they get into the group and they're like, wait a minute, I don't agree with that person in my group. Like, oh, we must be, it must be an identity issue, not yeah. the idea that maybe we're all just really different and we're not going to agree just because we're all women or because we're all exactly. whatever. No, we just have to subset it out. We're like, no, that, that because identity politics says that we think as a group right so it must be an issue with the group i'm in not with the idea that the theory is incorrect right wrong <laughs> wrong um so people like to define themselves into these smaller and smaller groups like on facebook there's apparently 58 different genders that you can choose from now because i know before it was two three blah 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 we keep going we're like ah, oh, this doesn't work this gender doesn't make sense to me i disagree with you and you're in my gender so there must be a new group or we can even think about this with the acronyms, right? Yeah. LGB first, LGBTQ, LGBTQIA, LGBTQ, LGBTQQIAAP. Plus, plus. Plus, plus. Right. right. I knew there was more. Yeah. I was trying to do it on memory. It did not work. <laughs> but we have so many groups now that we have to come up with new acronyms all the time for the groups to keep it straight, right? We have POC. BIPOC, so B-I-P-O-C, A-A-P-I. I, we just have to keep dividing and dividing up because identity politics makes us a little bit obsessed with defining ourselves because right. not only is it our identity, it's our political identity. So it's the way that we are internally and externally, we think is defined by right. the group that we fit into. Basically, it leads us into this kind of, I saw an article, they called it Oppression Olympics, where we literally are keeping score of who is the least and the most marginalized so we know how to proceed in group dynamics. Right. Like, that's why you put your identity out so you know how to behave. Like, right. okay, well, I'm, I have more privilege than you have less and how much, okay, are you, you were raised by one parent. Okay. All right. Well, what color are you? Okay. But you right. know, like literally, and we're trying to determine yeah. from there, once we detect, we kind of gauge how oppressed or oppressor we are. Then we move forward based yeah. on our oppression or oppressor status. Yeah. I, out in public, I've heard somebody say, at least I'm not cis. Like, really? Yeah. I, I, it's just, it, we, and then when we get to the group and we're like, people aren't like us, we're like, well, we got to make a smaller group, right? And identity politics has also convinced us not only that we should agree with everybody who is in the same group of us with their immutable or not maybe characteristics, like every woman should agree or every person of this color should agree or every person of this gender should agree and if not, break down more. Also, identity politics has convinced us that only the group that's affected by an issue can even have an opinion on the issue, right? Because identity is political, so you can't cross the political boundaries of like a you know no uterus, no opinion. Thus, anyone without a uterus can have no opinion on the topic of abortion, full stop, under identity politics. Right. No I mean, chance. We see that a lot right now. I saw an article saying that there was during a Black Lives Matter protest in 2016, a protest leader said, and this is a quote, and you know, who knows if this is true or not, because I wasn't at the rally, but this was in an article, and they said, quote, this is a black and brown resistance march asking white allies to appropriately take their place in the back of the march. Which, it, it's not super far-fetched, because we were talking about, like, uh, I've said this a couple times at our university, how they were asking the men to participate less because of their oppressor status, and it might make the women feel like so oppressed just because they exist. Yeah, just because they're in the room. <laughs> they're in the room. They're already living under your oppression just because you exist, and then you speak like, oh my gosh, how dare you? How dare. So also because everything is identity, 
again, which is this premise that we, we accept and live under that's actually really wild. It's a radical premise that all of us are only our identity and identity should be the driving political force of our lives. And that cultural appropriation, that is the affront, like an ultimate affront. So I pulled this thing from The Guardian. They were talking about how Beyonce was criticized for wearing what looked like a traditional Indian bridal outfit. Amy Schumer was criticized for making a parody of Beyonce. Then there were students at a university. Oh, man, they were talking about somebody who was a vendor. And they said that, quote, this vendor was... Vendor's, quote, history of blurring the lines between culinary diversity and cultural appropriation by modifying the recipes without respect for certain Asian countries' cuisines. So they were just saying somebody's cooking is like a little too and a little not enough Asian. It might be appropriation. Right. Like if I make fried rice. No. It's appropriation. And, and under the world where identity politics reigns supreme, that is a big affront. That makes sense. Right. That's how we get to these, <laughs> this point where they were talking about, oh, man if women like their white women make their eyebrows look thicker that's appropriation and there's full articles cha about whether or not who should be able to braid their hair that is a oh, full know. article like hey i'm this color with this life experience is it weird if i braid my hair but way back i had somebody who was indigenous american and also maybe my family came from here it's like a checklist of should i be able to braid my hair or not and on its face that's like wait a minute we've never cared about that no before no, it's and and, and talk about like it's funny to me. This is just I'm side tangenting, but I remember when we were doing the episode about gender that women were afraid of being gatekeepers of their gender. So it's like everybody is it's somehow simultaneously that only certain people can braid their hair, but everybody can be a woman. I don't understand that. It kind of f- throws in the face of identity politics. Right. Frankly, that's a separate yeah. Separate well, and, and lapping, we're just well, in an undoing. But really, the thing is. No one was really offended. Maybe there are a few. Maybe there are a few. I didn't know anyone personally who was offended or worried about braiding our hair until somebody decided that we would be more revolutionarily useful if braids really ticked us off, right? Because we were content. That's the idea. Revolution doesn't happen when people are content. You have to agitate them. You have to remind them of their oppression. Be like, hey, you see that person in braids? You might not have thought about this, but they're doing that because they're an oppressor to you. Right. And they're appropriating your culture. Right. Which is yours and it's your political identity. So you should be upset about that. Like you need to get angry. Right. And that's how people get agitated. I mean, it's really sneaky and it's kind of it's kind of mean, actually. Just makes people run around worried all the time. Not to mention our identities and identity politics are defined by the things that happen to us that are oppression. So it's like the things I was saying this in the episode about women. I was about to, to say, yeah, you brought this up that how is it that we've come to the fact that we have to have commonality on, on our on our oppression? Right. That's crazy. That That's like to define being a woman. It's like, oh, it's getting catcalled. It's uh, the gender pay gap. And I was like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. That can't be it. Right. But then then what's interesting about identity politics is we have to go through these huge hoops when groups when somebody within a group does not behave the political way they are supposed to behave. Based it, on the identity politics oh, based of on that their group. identity. Right. Yes, the politicking of the identity of that group. Which you'll find most identities are supposed to pull you towards socialism, and if they don't, they don't count as an identity. You will find that to be true, but it's like anybody that doesn't fit into the narrative, then their identity is no longer important. Their identity is disregarded. So that's how we end up. I think it's interesting, too. I almost skipped this clip. We can't skip this clip (laughs) because (laughs) essentially we're so conditioned that if people belong in the same identity, they must have the same wants. They must have the same needs. They must have the same priorities, which is how we get to our press secretary making statements like this here in cut two. Before we've run PSAs on the deadliest catch, we're engaged with NASCAR and country music TV. We're looking for a range of creative ways to get directly connected to white conservative communities. We want to... Right. So... Our press secretary, <laughs> you know, some ways it's true, stereotypes are true in some ways, but she th- sees the world through the lens of identity politics. And so yeah. to reach white conservative people. L- to, to quote, white conservative communities. You got to go deadliest catch. NASCAR. NASCAR. 
country music country TV. Music. They didn't kick me on any of those three. Yeah. John and I were joking. Man, I just finished Dudley's Catch right, right before right. this, Jen. And I'm so glad I saw that ad for the vaccination because if you hadn't played it on Dudley's Catch, man, I would not have seen it. Right. Because that's... Because <laughs> I'm just a southern all, white person. Right. All white people <laughs> watch Dudley's Catch. But it's, that's a way, idea that people are put into groups and we believe that the group should behave and think and have the same wants and needs politically, spiritually, emotionally based on their immutable characteristics. I keep using the word immutable. That means can't be muted, like can't be silenced. So like um, color of your skin, things like that, color right. of your eyes, whatever. Those are immutable. They just continue right. on. I, I want to, again, c- consistently point out the, the places where maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking um, this is, uh, you might have thought another way than what we're talking about right now. And I just ask you to look at, do you think, all of these ideas kind of blow up in the face of themselves. Oh, yeah. Because do you think Jen Psaki is watching um, Deadliest Catch? Like <laughs> She must be. I can right. only assume. We can only Well, assume. she's not conservative, though. That's so she's true. probably watching, I don't know, TLC. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just all of these ideas kind of, they um, are hypocritical in nature because... Well, because we understand innately that people are individuals with individual wants and needs and they don't fit into groups. We know that to be true, but we have to pretend we don't know that to be true to jump the intellectual hoops of identity politics, which is how we get to something like you might have heard. Caitlyn Jenner is running for governor of California, potentially. Of course, the website mostly has merch, (laughs) (laughs) not platforms, but there was an article from Refinery29 that Shaw sent me that said why Caitlyn Jenner's run for governor could hurt the trans community. Okay, so right at the end of this, it says, uh, basically, Caitlyn Jenner is going to run as a Republican. Yep. So right there, her identity is not essentially creating the political results that would lead towards a socialist revolution and utopia, and thus her identity is no longer Mm -hmm. anything. So it says at the end of it that, but her decision, this is um, in the article from Refinery29, quote, but her decision to run as a Republican, despite the party's continued attacks on transgender people, proves what the LGBTQ plus community has known all along. Caitlyn Jenner doesn't care about trans people. So this may seem strange, right, to read. Like, wait a minute. We're frequently told that people have inherent worth because of their identity, right? Like you said, like this person's right. the first this, this, and this, and that's why they should get elected because they're the first woman, not because they're good at anything other than being a woman maybe right, <laughs> right. um and it should be regardless of their positions but that's that's not the case so you see the inconsistencies here because people's identity are only superior when they feed a larger political narrative because yep. identity is equated with political ideology so that's how you get to the point where people can say black republicans aren't black because black is a political ideology it's not a color of your skin no that's why i this was one ta coates wrote an essay called i'm not black i'm kanye because Kanye came, as we know, was right. was for Trump. So Ta-Nehisi Coates was like, all right, then you're not black because black is a political stance, right? Then right. I saw something from The Blade, which is an LGBTQ magazine, and they said, gay Republicans are a disgrace to an otherwise united community. That's the headline. It's it's really So if you insane. break your narrative, you right. are no longer valued on you're your identity. You're not useful. You're not even in your identity right. anymore. I mean, and, and th- this is happening in real time, right? So I sent you that article and then a day later, a friend of mine I went to high school with posted something that said, Caitlyn Jenner is so problematic for our community. And I was like, well, that's the rub right there, isn't it? But that's, you have to look in the face. That's because people say identity is political. And that's the only way that would be problematic. You know, like it, it's, that's why a Republican woman is not celebrated when she enters office in the same way that a woman who has Democrat value, Democratic not democratic, Democrat values, progressive values, right? right? So this was the year, they said the year of the Republican woman. Where's the party on that? It's not going to be there because Republican women do not fit into the identity they're supposed to politically, which would lead to the socialist revolution, basically. And it sounds extreme, but it's really not. You know, it's like- And we're watching it play out over and over again. It's not like hard to find. It's a Google search away. People aren't embarrassed about it. Socialism is not a dirty word like communism used to be, Right. right? Because our generation doesn't really remember- the effects of communism and like you know like in russia or, or in the ussr we don't really remember the berlin wall falling we don't really remember all of those things right. so it's not a dirty word anymore it's out there it's easy to find and nobody's really hiding about it so if your identity doesn't align with the desired political outcome of dismantling the system you are an outsider to that identity right which only makes sense if your entire worldview is identity politics 
If not, it makes no sense because identity is ultimately a tool for revolution. So if your identity doesn't work, just like when it didn't work with the workers, they'll just move on to a new tool. Right. You don't, we don't need that tool then. You're actually, you're either with or against us, regardless of really your identity. If identity is working, we'll take it. If it's not, you're out. And that's, you got to think about, essentially they're trying to agitate whatever group they can to do the bidding of the revolution. Right. It was workers and then it was all different different groups. They've been trying to do it economically. They didn't bite. It doesn't matter. They'll take Anything. basically anyone who will do the bidding of what they're hoping will end in utopia, which I don't believe it will and history says it won't. Right. But we got to think what's the natural end to this, right? And <laughs> with all of this. Handmaid's Tale. Handmaid's Tale. Okay. <laughs> That is bleak, Cha. Well. <laughs> so I haven't seen Handmaid's Tale, so I couldn't confirm or deny. It's pretty bleak. <laughs> it seems bleak. I mean, I, I imagine it's bleak. <laughs> but we're told the natural end to this is the natural end to the division we're doing now of identity politics will be equality and ultimately freedom and happiness and peace and love and all of the good things. That's what we're told. And that's what I think people run under the assumption of when they start to be concerned about if braiding my hair is an affront or when they start to like count their oppressor versus oppressive point or oppressor versus oppressed points. I think that they're running under the idea, which is a big lie that all of this leads to happiness. Right. And I, I just, something popped in my head really quick, Michaela, is that we're not, you're not saying, we're not saying that we shouldn't be um, earnestly combating things like racism. Oh no, this has nothing to do with right. racism. I mean, that's part of the big lie too. Is like I said, this isn't about race. This was ultimately about capitalism. About capitalism. So I just, just to be clear to everyone, this isn't. We. It's not like we are saying sexism doesn't exist, racism doesn't exist, and no. we all are being fooled. No, no, definitely it's, not. Right. It, as you look more deeply into it, it is about capitalism and and this machine. And it's about nuance. And I think a lot of people will attack views like ours with those words. They'll be like, oh, well, you're this obviously word, racist, this word, this you're word. Obvi- whatever. Because we're worried about going deeply into these ideas and the nuance of these ideas. And of course, if we stay separated into groups, we're more likely to carry out the revolution because we feel like there's no other choice but revolution, right? So it's a threat to speak of things in a nuanced way to people who would truly seek complete dismantling of the systems to speak with nuance is a huge threat and, and it has right. to be eliminated and that's what we're seeing i mean d- doesn't it sound if you know a, even a little bit about history like they didn't like the thinkers you know like they didn't like the thinkers yeah the artists the writers yep. the philosophers yep. yeah usually people when they're moving towards totalitarianism they got to get rid of the the poets the philosophers they got to get them out because they might cause people to dissent And that's not going to work if your ultimate goal is utopia and equality. And if you work under the guise of identity politics, dissent, especially if you're in one of these uh, really crucial, crucial identity groups, dissent is not going to work. Nope. And and as again, just to point to something that's happening right now with Caitlyn Jenner. Yeah. Not going to work. Not going to work. Not won't do. (laughs) Not that I know anything about caitlin's policies or that i'm saying caitlin would be a great candidate because i know nothing other than that there's wine merch (laughs) on the the website but what's interesting is the cultural fallout surrounding it right yeah wow i mean i could go on about the caitlin jenner thing because it just it it hurts my heart for so many reasons but it's so interesting that like the, the only thing that's on the website is merch yet the community is just so uh absolutely well, Caitlyn Jenner knows. spoke at the Republican National Convention and right well and and um her team is full of ex, Republicans um, Trump people Trump people um and Republicans so like that's not the the thing that's happening but even they don't like you said they don't know her policies so how can they just automatically I mean I know how they can but it just right identity silly. politics right <laughs> so I want to run this out how, how does this end what happens So I'm going to quote the Communist Manifesto, right? Marx wrote this book, and he said, quote, The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. The communists disdain to conceal their views and aims. They openly declare that their ends can be attained only by the forcible overthrow of all existing social conditions. Now, Gramsci was a little less violently inclined, and he said, why fight when we could just take over the systems from the inside and have them do our own deconstructing, like in the education system, media, family? That's why we see now that our free press is beginning to openly question free speech. 
Our president, who has been in the system for one million, two million years, is openly calling it systemically racist and priming it for radical reinvention. Major corporations are applauding the government for redistributing their money and taxing the blip out of them. And our history courses frame American history as one giant battle between the oppressed and the oppressors. In many ways, Marx, Gramsci, Marcuse, the Cahambi River Collective, they'd be quite pleased as identity politics weaves its way into our everyday lives and our everyday decision making. But once we've dismantled the superstructure, American capitalism has fallen. All of the major institutions have crumbled around us. Then what? Imagine we get everything we call for. Our system of free government is deconstructed. The police are defunded. The free market ceases to exist. Imagine that happens tomorrow. The people we study today who champion identity politics hoped that it would usher in a socialism or communism. That's what they hoped for. But growing up in freedom, it's easy to take it for granted. It's easy to give it away. When we go past equality to better, who now determines what better even looks like? With no restraint on the government, does the mob rule? Do our politicians rule? Perhaps a series of gang families like in Ukraine after the Soviet Union collapsed? Is racism over now that everything has collapsed? No, it's not. I encourage you to take a look at the places throughout history who have employed the utopian dream of people like Marx, Gramsci, and Marcusa and decide, is that truly the way you want to live? Has it ever created the utopia and happiness that we are looking for? Because I think you're going to find that it hasn't. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And remember, treat everyone with kindness and never trade what looks right for what is right. everybody thank you so much for joining us today this was again another great one and we're so happy you were here today as always you can follow us on facebook and instagram at something burger podcast and on twitter at s burger podcast please reach out to us if you have any questions or want to know anything from michaela or myself you can uh, contact us at somethingburgerpodcast at gmail.com uh like always leave us a review tell us what you think please on google or on the podcast app whichever you use anywhere you listen to podcasts you can find us leave us a review well thanks again everybody and we will see you next week